Hey everyone, technically you're getting two days in history today because we're running two episodes from the History Vault. Hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that uncovers history one day at a time. The day was February 1st, 1960. It was the height of the civil rights movement in America, and Black students across the South were organizing to fight for equal rights. Segregation between African-American and white people was the norm, and for years, activists had been fighting the status quo with methods of nonviolent protest. So on the afternoon of February 1st, four students named Izell Blair Jr., David Richmond, Franklin McCain, and Joseph McNeil purchased items, then sat down at a whites-only lunch counter at a Woolworth store in Greensboro, North Carolina. They refused to move. Their action that day was simple, but it took careful planning, and it spurred more sit-ins across the country. The four men, all students at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University, would become known as the Greensboro Four. The four students would meet in their dorm rooms in so-called bull sessions, where they discussed the treatment of Black people in the U.S. and what they could do about it. But after Blair, now named Jabril Kazan, was denied service when he tried to get food at a Greyhound bus station, the group was moved to action. They knew they needed to do more and talk less to be able to incite real change. So they decided to protest racial segregation by conducting a sit-in at Woolworth, which was a large enough entity that any major disruption would get national attention from Black and non-Black people. And if they got enough media attention, they thought, then they could get Woolworth to desegregate. It's been said that white store owner Ralph Johns encouraged and counseled the Greensboro Four into the Woolworth sit-ins, but McCain and Kazan have denied the sit-in was John's idea. Anyway, the concept of a sit-in was not new. Activists had engaged in this kind of protest for over a decade by this point. In 1943, Polly Murray, a Howard University law student who would go on to become a lawyer and priest, organized stool sittings in segregated cafeterias. Women in the Citizens' Civil Rights Committee in St. Louis, Missouri, held lunch counter sit-ins in the 1940s. And in the 1950s, the Congress on Racial Equality staged sit-ins in Baltimore to protest discrimination. But even though sit-ins had already been happening all over the country, the Greensboro-Woolworth sit-in sparked a massive movement. On February 1st, the Greensboro Four tried to order coffee at the Woolworth lunch counter, but they were refused service, as was the store policy. The staff asked the students to leave, but the students did not budge. When police got to the Woolworth, they said they couldn't take any action because the students hadn't provoked anybody. And even then, local media was already all over the story. So the four stayed at the lunch counter until the store closed early, and then went back to campus to find more people to join their cause. The next day, Nearly 30 students showed up at the Woolworth counter to protest segregation. And the day after that, 
more than 60 students showed up. The Student Executive Committee for Justice sent a letter to the president of F.W. Woolworth asking the company to, quote, take a firm stand to eliminate discrimination. In the following days, the protests grew. Students from Bennett College and Dudley High School also joined the demonstrations, as well as white students from nearby colleges. Members of the Ku Klux Klan and white patrons heckled the students. But by February 4th, the sit-in had spread to another lunch counter at S.H. Crest & Co. And on February 5th, the protest had grown to over 300 strong and was getting a ton of media coverage. Some students protesting at the Woolworth and Crest stores did get arrested, but the boycotts were hurting the store's sales. And soon, people all over the country were organizing sit-ins and other forms of nonviolent protests against racial segregation. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee formed in April 1960 at the encouragement of civil rights organizer Ella Baker. And in July 1960, the Woolworth and Crest counters were integrated. F.W. Woolworth employees Charles Bess, Maddie Long, Susie Morrison, and Jamie Robinson were the first African-Americans to eat at the Woolworth lunch counter. I'm Eve Steffcoat, and hopefully you know a little bit more about history today than you did yesterday. Hey, y'all. If you listened yesterday, you know that I had a cold. I am still recovering from that cold, which means my voice is still hoarse. So thank you for bearing with me again. You can subscribe to This Day in History class on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Come back tomorrow for another tidbit from history. Hey everyone, I'm Eves, and welcome back to This Day in History class, a podcast where we unwrap a piece of history candy every day. The day was February 1st, 1902. Writer and activist Langston Hughes was born in Joplin, Missouri. Hughes was an important figure in the Harlem Renaissance, and he is considered a pioneer of modern Black literature. Though it's long been believed that he was born in 1902, recent archival discoveries do suggest that he may have been born a year earlier. Hughes' lineage was full of prominent and politically active people. His maternal grandmother's first husband, Louis Leary, died in John Brown's raid at Harper's Ferry. His grandfather, Charles Henry Langston, was an abolitionist and one of the first Black people to attend Oberlin College. His great-uncle, John Mercer Langston, was the first Black congressman from Virginia, the first president of Virginia State University, and the first dean of the law school at Harvard University. And his grandmother frequently told him stories about their family's history. His parents were James Hughes and Carrie Langston. When Hughes was young, his father left the family and moved to Mexico, and his parents divorced. His mother moved to different cities for work. As a result, Hughes' grandmother raised him in Lawrence, Kansas, though he lived with and visited his mother in some cities, like Kansas City and Colorado Springs. Eventually, he settled with his mother and stepfather in Lincoln, Illinois, then Cleveland, Ohio. By this time, Hughes had already begun writing poetry. 
He went to high school in Cleveland, and there he began delving into leftist literature and ideology. He took interest in The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois and studied the work of Paul Lawrence Dunbar, Carl Sandburg, Friedrich Nietzsche, and other writers, and he started publishing his poems. Hughes wrote one of his most famous poems, The Negro Speaks of Rivers, when he was a teenager on a train to Mexico. Once he graduated high school, he spent a year in Mexico with his father, but he had a strained relationship with his father, who considered Black people inferior even though he was Black, and he urged Hughes to pursue a career that was more practical than writing. But Hughes immersed himself more in his writing. He moved to New York City, attended Columbia University, took odd jobs, then dropped out of college. He traveled to Africa and Europe as a crewman, and he lived in Paris for a while, where he continued to write poems and fiction and learned more about blues and jazz artists. When he returned to the U.S., he moved to Washington, D.C., and took trips to Harlem, where he met literary figures like County Cullen and Gene Toomer. In 1926, Alfred A. Knopf published his first book of poetry, The Wary Blues. In addition to poetry, Hughes wrote novels, short stories, and plays, in which he portrayed Black American life in the 1920s through 1960s. His works include The Simple Tales, which began as a regular column in the Chicago Defender, a book of short stories called The Ways of White Folks, and a play called Mulatto that ran on Broadway for more than a year. Hughes did reading tours, and he traveled throughout the Soviet Union and Asia, writing a lot of leftist poetry. He wrote prolifically, and many people around the world supported his work, but many others disliked his portrayals of everyday working-class Black people, believing it was a disservice to the race to display the less desirable aspects of Black life. And other critics thought that Hughes didn't take a strong enough political stance in his work. Regardless, Hughes became successful enough to live off of his writing and public lectures. Hughes wrote up until his death in 1967. His ashes are beneath a floor medallion at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture in Harlem. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you haven't gotten your fill of history yet, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at T-D-I-H-C podcast. You can also email us at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>